The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Before we get started with this week's edition of Bench with Bubba, let me talk to you about Draft. Draft Draft.com is one of the coolest new ways to play fantasy sports. You get to draft against you know, three, five, ten-man competitions. There's new drafts starting every five minutes. Your chances of winning on draft are over 80% better than on salary cap sites. That's why you need to try draft. No more getting crushed by the pros. More than one million people have already downloaded draft. You can play in real life NBA, NFL. They have NHL. PGA is a great one. They have MLB. They have them all. It keeps getting better, better, and better. Drafts usually finish in under five minutes. You get paid the next day. The event finishes, but they're fi- and they're filling fast. Every second, drafts are filling. They have them up until your game. Games begin. All new players get a free entry into a real money draft when you make your first deposit, and you have to use the promo code SD Sports. All one word, SD Sports. That's right. Playing a real money draft for free by using the promo code SD Sports. But it gets even better. Draft is so sure you'll love it that they're even offering a money back guarantee up to $100. Just search Draft in your app store or go to Draft.com and come play for free right now with promo code SD Sports. Void or prohibited, must be 18 or older. See website for details. Offer must be redeemed within 14 days. Now to this week's edition of Benched with Bubba. back to another episode of Bench with Bubba, episode 81. Tonight, talking a little MLB DFS strategy as we are one week away from the Major League Baseball season starting. And in order to do so, bringing back a friendly voice. If you're uh, listening to the Two Point Conversion NFL DFS podcast, you may know this man. Find him on DailyRoto.com, on Twitter at Pater underscore DFS. James McCool. James, how we doing, man? What up? Uh, I am. I'm good. I'm doing great. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day in Colorado today, and um, yeah, just excited for for baseball to be coming back, and excited to be on a podcast with you. No, I love it, and glad you uh, you could join me and uh, get ready to talk some baseball. Everybody liked what we did on football, and I know you do a lot of baseball stuff at Daily Roto, so we'll be able throughout the year to help some people out with uh, our DFS talk and whatnot. So I thought we'd uh, do a little strategy talk because uh, there's a lot of people that don't really know the the basis between building the lineup. They don't know the you know where to find your value, how to find your value, things like that. But what I wanted to start with is you had a very interesting article you came out with recently. It wasn't just a standard you know cash game versus GPP, which we'll talk about and stuff like that. You broke down kind of ballparks to target early in the season. Kind of give us a rundown on what you uh, had going there. Yeah, so I I kind of dove into last year and uh, I, I wanted to look at the best places to attack in early season because we know that weather has a lot to do with baseball. Baseball is uh, probably one of the only sports, I guess you can consider soccer, but one of the only sports that weather really, really plays a huge toll. I mean, in NFL, 
Uh, the only thing that really matters is snow. And if you have gusts of wind over like 20 miles an hour, that's going to affect things. But in baseball, every little thing matters. Um, temperature matters. Dew point matters. Wind matters. Snow, rain, sleet, hail, um, everything. It's, it's a really big part of the way that we attack slates. So um, in early season, in March and April, and a little bit of May, depending on where you are in the country, uh, those weather fluctuations can really affect the way that you build lineups because they can really affect the way that uh, teams can perform in certain spots. So that that was really the basis of my article. Okay. And it makes a lot of sense because uh, I believe I talked about it on a recent podcast. You'll see so many snow outs that you don't see in other sports, uh, not just rain outs, snow outs and uh, stuff like that early in the year because it is so cold. You know, Cleveland always gets it. They're talking these nor'easters and uh, the Northeast and Boston's they're already scheduling opening day could be an issue. So things like that definitely do come into play. And based on your list and everybody should go check out this article on daily Roto. It's a free article has all the information on their big chart to look at and everything. If I'm reading this correctly, cause I'm not the smartest man in the world. Like you have Milwaukee, Colorado, Miami as like the top three to target in the first uh, month or so. Yeah. So Basically, uh, what you, what most people think of when they think of like where to attack in early season, they they think of um, warm places. They they think of indoors. They're they're trying to avoid the weather, and intuitively that still works. I, I mean, there's still warm places out here. Miami is obviously warm even in the winter. Uh, we have let's see, Miami. We have Arizona. We have Cincinnati. Like that, these kind of like warmer places. Um, but indoor is the one that kind of didn't make sense according to the numbers. And the reason why places like Milwaukee and Colorado come up is because not only are they, um, hitters parks in that the ball can go over the fence rather easily, but they're hitters parks because they increase the amount of balls in play when a hitter is up at bat. And so that's a lot of what my data has found is that it's not necessarily about attacking pitchers and attacking situations where it's easy to get the ball to go over the fence. It's more about trying to get more balls in play because what I found is that the BABIP numbers all the way back to 2015 were the lowest across the league in April and March. Um, the amount of balls hit in April and March per game were the lowest. Uh, just It's all about what was hit because the strikeout rates didn't really change. In fact, strikeout rates were pretty good in April and March in 2017. So it's, it's not necessarily that hitters aren't making contact. It's just that they're not hitting the ball over the fence as often. So my data suggests that we should be attacking parks that help hitters just get the ball in play. Um, and that's why it's surprising when you see a park like Pittsburgh, PNC Park, obviously, we think of it as a pitcher's park for most of the year. And that's fair because it's huge. But because it's so large, it's like Detroit. Detroit is large and has that really deep center fence. But there's a lot of balls in play in both those parks. So early in the season, focusing on areas where you're going to get a lot of balls in play and it's easier for batters to get on base, that's what my dad is suggesting we should be doing. That's that's where the majority of the um, differentials happened in the positive areas. No, and, and that makes sense. It's a good point you mentioned with places like Pittsburgh, which is the, the sixth best environment, Washington, who – it's going to be cold and the weather might be bad, but still balls in play, as you suggest. Um, you have, you know, average OBP slugging all these data metrics up top to target. Was there any certain one that you really focused on? Um, if you had to like differentiate between, say, a fourth and a sixth place uh, deal or something like that? Yeah, I always prefer to focus on OBP. Um it, because and we'll get into this later when I when we talk about um, what we focus on when we're picking our hitters, but uh, typically I prefer to focus on guys that can just get on base. Um, I, I know a lot of guys focus a lot on ISO and that's good because uh, home runs are important, but I, I really, if I'm trying to focus on stacks and if I'm trying to focus on just kind of a floor, I think it's more important for people to be getting on base than to be get, hitting home runs. And even with that being said, these guys that get on base plenty, um, like Ender and Sarate, he, he comes to mind. He, he's not going to be hitting a lot of home runs, but he gets on base a lot. So it, it raises his floor and it helps so that he can score runs in that lineup. Um, so it, if I was going to be focused on anything from this list, it would be OBP first um, and then probably runs created plus. Um, 
I do have to say really quickly that Milwaukee was a little bit skewed because Atlanta went superhuman on them last year in that series. They batted like almost 400 for the series. So they that kind of threw off the run traded plus there. But um, yeah, the, those two would be the ones that I focus in on um, OBP and uh, run traded plus. I'm glad you mentioned the Milwaukee because I saw the 21.042. I was like, whoa, that stood out so much compared to everything else. But uh, that's another point is people is not just we're not focusing on, say, the Milwaukee Brewers, per se. We're talking ballparks. So the Braves impact there impacts the Milwaukee ballpark. When we look more at the bottom of the list, you know, you have your pitcher ballparks in San Francisco, Kansas City, San Diego, so on and so forth. But some might be surprised, like Houston, the White Sox, the ball flies out of there in the summertime, maybe not so much in the wintertime. Is this still an OB or like a, a balls in play, a Babbitt thing, or um, were there other factors you looked into to kind of differentiate your bottom? Yeah, so this – obviously, San Francisco, we don't need to talk in anything about that. Um, that is the lowest-rated ballpark all the way across everything throughout the year, I'm pretty sure. Um we, we just don't want to attack that, especially in early season when the ball isn't flying as far. Um, I was surprised to see Kansas City uh, that low. I thought that it would probably be um, like lower than average, but I didn't think that it would be 29th. So I was surprised to see that. Uh, the White Sox was interesting. I think that that is, it was heavily influenced by Babbitt, but you can see that um, that average is really, really low. I mean, that's the largest average differential that we have for all of 2017. And there there might have been a little bit of bad luck there. There might have been um, a little bit better pitching. I, I remember that early in the season, I, I don't remember who it was off the top of my head, but one of their really bad pitchers was pitching really well for like two series at the beginning of the year. Um, and it, that was kind of an outlier. And then as the year progressed, the White Sox just continued to regress back into what they are. Um, and this year, there'll be another spot to attack if uh, if Reynaldo is not good. So um, the White Sox was an interesting one. I, I think that that average differential is obviously an outlier. Um, they weren't awful across the board, they were, but they were definitely negative. So um, when you look at them and you look at um, the Chicago Cubs, it's interesting to see the differential there because that's – that's obviously not based entirely on temperature since they're located in basically the same area. Um, I, I, I do think that we're going to want to avoid the White Sox early, though, because if my data is not lying, which it's data, it doesn't lie about things, um, it, it might be in a nice spot to be contrarian while people are trying to attack that spot. Um, because it does, it flies in the summer, but early in the year, it looks like it, it just does not that there might be some bad issues, but it might just be the way that park runs. Um, question I have for you, when we're looking at this uh, list, how long do you focus on this? Is it till say end of April, middle of May? What, what's kind of your gauge to, to kind of stick to this and then kind of fade away? So usually early season is weird. Um, I, I would probably only focus on this through April and then I, I probably wouldn't continue focusing on May. Um, th this is just strictly while we're still sticking in the winter. I, I guess we have to monitor how cold things are going to be. But uh, eventually things are going to regress back through. And when you look at the actual seasonal splits, um, which I do have up, it, it, May is pretty regular. Um, it's, it's not that much different than, say, um, August. It's not that much different from July. So... Uh, May is pretty regular, and March and April is by far the largest outlier that we have here. Um, and I posted that in the article as well. You can see each each month, you can see the splits of uh, the differentials in my article. So um, I, I wouldn't focus on it past April, I don't think. Okay, a couple more questions on this topic. So we're f the top top ballparks we're focusing on for bats, but now until we talk Chicago White Sox, we talked New York Yankees and or, and other teams at the bottom. Are you, and I, I pretty much know the answer, but I want to clarify it. So say White Sox, we should target pitchers in that game and then go bats heavy in the other games because people might think the White Sox is a lively park, but you might get a discount on pitching. Correct. Right, right, right. Exactly. And and if we have kind of these these high upside pitchers, um, like I said earlier, strikeout rates aren't really improved in uh, March and April. Like the batters are still making contact, 
they're just not hitting a lot of home runs. That's a large differential is um, home run fly ball rate was the lowest uh, for both 2017 and 2016. So um, that is, that's the main differential at differentiation here is home run rates. So it, it's not really a strikeout thing, but these, these guys that give up home runs um, that are super cheap, if you play on a DraftKings where you need two pitchers, yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's some edge there. Okay. And last question I have for you here is, do you, and this is kind of a strategy we can, we can also elaborate on later, this is kind of a way of a park factor. Uh, everyone likes to talk park factors and this, that, and the other. Do you use park factors a lot when you're analyzing your lineups? Yes and no. Um, I, I try not to focus on it too much. There's only a couple that are really, really big for me. Um, Colorado obviously being one, and that's just because of, like, you can't argue with the physics of the way that park works. But um, I, I usually, so the way that I build things out is I, I build through gradings, and I, I assign kind of, a, kind of like a weight in my algorithms to each park. And Colorado is the largest one, but then it can kind of transfer. I mean, if I'm looking at fan graphs and I see this certain park as being really, really friendly at the moment, um, I might jump that up a little bit, but it's never going to be something that influences a hitter to the point where I'm going to play a stack in Cincinnati just because it's in Cincinnati. Um, I might do that in Colorado no matter who they're facing, but um, I, I don't really do that for any other park. Okay, perfect. So let's talk. Let's take that into how we kind of prepare our lineups for the slates, and they differentiate based on uh, sizes and you know early, late, all kinds of different things. Does the size of the slate change the way you prepare your lineup? Uh, no. Not it doesn't really. for me. It doesn't for me. I, I know in NBA it can. That's why I was wondering. Or NFL it can. I was wondering how you feel in uh, MLB. Yeah, I mean, it, kind of, yes. Uh, really, the, the prices of each pitcher and kind of how my, how my numbers shake out will more influence – um, how many different stacks I have and how many different teams I attack. Like uh, if, if I have four teams that are all really highly rated uh, as a stacking opportunity, then I might run out all four or I'll run out three and like try to have some exposure in my one-offs of that fourth team. But if I only have two teams that rate really, really well, then I'll only use those two. It's, it's not really dependent on slate size. It's just more dependent on how my numbers shake out. You mentioned, you know, the price for pitchers and then everything. Well, we have our $50,000 budget. Do you set aside a, a specific amount for pitchers, or is that just a slate-by-slate slate thing? Um, I'm usually big on paying up at pitcher because uh, the, the way that I look at it, pitcher, you, you can project pitchers pretty well. Um, it, you can kind of look at things, and it, if you have Steven Strasburg against, like, Milwaukee, um fading him and trying to take Chris Archer against the Cubs is typically a pretty bad idea. Um, especially because the reason why you don't usually pay out for pay up for pitching is because you want to focus on bats. And I know that bats are extremely variant uh, across the league. Like sometimes you'll, you'll stack against James Shields and he'll throw a nine strikeout seven inning game and only give up two runs and two runs is going to win you a tournament, you know? Um, whereas if, if you did that and you took like Masahiro Tanaka or something like that, and he gave up three runs, then you're screwed because people paid up for Strasburg, um, or somebody like that. So I, I always prefer to pay up for pitching, but I don't really have like a set idea on how much I'm going to spend. Um, but I, I will say that that's it. I, usually the way that I stack and the way that I build, I, I kind of end up on value plays anyway at hitters. So that kind of leads me to paying up for pitching anyway. Yeah, and I know I'm kind of jumping around on the outline, but we'll hit everything. I, I agree with what you're saying here when it comes to the pitching. Like if I see a value guy that stands out, okay, it might be my SP2. I rarely will have two just, you know, crappy pitchers. I'll definitely make sure I have some sort of a leverager because, you know, when Chris Sale went on that run, you paid whatever price you wanted for him because 50-plus points a night – if you don't have that, it's like playing Russell Westbrook. You have to have it. There's no answer. You can't go around it. And the part that I wanted to, to emphasize is you mentioned the value on the bats. There are always value bats out there. And people need to remember 
that a good day at the plate is like one for four, one for three. And if that value bats one is like a double and a run scored, you've already made value. Yeah. So you're not looking for them to go like an NBA. I always I'm trying to compare to other sports so people can get the mindset. You don't need him to go for 25 and 10. Like it's totally different. So yeah, uh, and not... yeah, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. No, no. I continue. Go for it. Yeah, and and you you bring up the NBA, and that's that's a good thing to do because when when you play a punt in NBA, right? Um, you basically want 15 fantasy points out of it. Um, no matter really if it costs 3k, then you want 15 fantasy points, or or you want 20. And um, in NFL, I always look at it and say, okay, well, if I have a min price guy. Um, I don't want him to just get 10 points. I want him to get 15. 15 is pretty much the threshold for me um, in those kind of sports. But in baseball, um, I use Miguel Rojas a lot last year for the Marlins. Um, he had third base uh, shortstop eligibility, and it was really hard to find cheap shortstops last year, uh, especially when people were paying up for Correa or people were paying up for uh, Trey Turner for a while when he was healthy, you know? So I, I was always trying to pay down at shortstop because I didn't really like paying that much. I didn't like paying that premium for these guys that were going to be high owned. Um, but he would, he would usually get like a hit and a run scored, and that's five points. Or he would get six points. He'd get two hits or something. And that's all you need in baseball. Like you don't need somebody to hit a home run as your value play for them to be good. You just need them to get on base. If they hit a double and they get a run scored, then – you're gold, man. Like you, you don't need to worry about much more than that. So you're right. You're entirely right on that. Well, no, and I, I like the Rojas call because on my quick hits pod, it seemed like use catchers, which is the the standard place where most people flock for value. And I don't, I don't hate it, but if you want to differentiate shortstops, Rojas, Riddle, those Miami shortstops, I seem to be on them all the time at like two thousand, twenty one hundred bucks, and I just roll elsewhere. Um, there's another guy for the Red Sox that used to play once in a while. It was so cheap. It was, it was beautiful. Um. What stats? Because another great reason I wanted you on this podcast is I'm more of a like a basic stats guy and a feel guy, and I pay I watch a ton of games. You have algorithms, you have programs, you are way 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 more into stats than I am. What are some of the stats that you use to help build your lineups? So, from a statistics standpoint, I think that people can get a little bit um, caught up in a lot of the stats that that they use in baseball. So a lot of people, man, so many people are going to be focusing on like player versus pitch type this year because it, it caught fire last year. Like everybody wanted to talk about how Anthony Rendon was the best cutter hitter in baseball or, or like whatever, like things like that. But from that standpoint, like you have to understand the actual probability of something happening that is not just noise in a baseball game. So to, to kind of go on this little rant about this stat, like if you have a hitter that gets four plate appearances and a pitcher, say that you're attacking this pitcher because this hitter has a really, really good, um, he, he hits a splitter really, really well, right? Um, and this pitcher is not good with his splitter or whatever. Well, first you need to realize that if a pitcher is not good with a certain pitch, he's not going to throw it very often. Uh, and secondly, even if a pitcher, say, throws a pitch 20% of the time, right, and your batter is up there four times, let's say that he sees five pitches per at bat, you're only going to see that pitch like three times. That's a great point. And have it be hittable. Like it, when people focus on that kind of thing, when people try to focus that heavily on that micro stuff, that's when you're really, really hurting yourself because it, you might pass up good plays that have good all around stats. Like if you fade, Mike Trout, because Bryce Harper is good at hitting a cutter, like get, get out. Dude. <laughs> Don't do that. You're, you're hurting yourself because you're passing up on a, on a superior player for us, a, a superior stat. And, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. Um, but a lot of the stats that I focus on really are just kind of like the intuitive ideas of what you want in a hitter. Like, I, I put a lot of weight on guys that keep the ball in the air. Um, I, I put a lot of weight on uh, on both sides. So for hitters and pitchers, the only thing that I want is hitters. I want them to hit the ball into the air. And pitchers, I don't want them to let that happen. Um, because if a ball's on the ground, can't do anything. Unless you're like Billy Hamilton and you can get to first base in like half second. Cool. But I focus on guys can hit the ball into the air. 
I focus on guys that hit the ball hard, and I focus on guys that hit the ball, period. So um, contact rate, ISO, um, slugging percentage, line drive and fly ball rates, uh, and hard minus soft. Uh, those are probably the main ones that I focus on and the main things that I put weight on because it's not really about, for me, uh, it's not really about just hitting the ball and getting on base. I want guys that are going to hit it into the gap, and I want guys that are going to be able to get those event plays and get me runs and hitting it in the ground and hitting it softly. Just don't do that. Yeah. And that's some of the stuff I look at. I, uh, I, I love the ISO stat. I, I, throughout the last few years, I've really learned or am still learning a lot of these major stat trends that people are looking at. ISO, WOBA are definitely ones I, I pay attention to on the hitting side of things. I do. Uh, do you look at splits and reverse splits very often? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so okay. my algorithm, it's it's built in that every single time that I, I have hitter data, it pulls from um, the, the pitcher's hand. So on both sides, uh, if if a player is facing a righty and that player is a lefty, then it only pulls the data for that player against righties and that pitcher against lefties. Yeah, that's what I'm, I, that's almost where I start most times. If I already know for a fact that you know player A is horrible versus a lefty and he's going up against, I don't. Most lefties, there are some that I just don't care about, but you know what I'm trying to say here. I will automatically, that guy's just pretty much off the list, not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll move on. So, and, and one of the new stats you hit on it is hard hit rate. And you do the hard hit minus soft, which makes a ton of sense as well. But that's one of those newer stats, you know, with the exit velocities and all those things. There's a lot to be said about that because a guy like Nick Castellanos was always underpriced last year and he hit the ball harder than almost anybody in baseball. And Manny Machado last year, when he was in his massive slump, was still one of like the top, I want to say five, but at least top ten hitters in baseball and hard hit rate. And then he just burst onto the scene. We got, If you were on him long enough, when he broke out, you paid dividends at that price point. So it's little things like that that I agree that definitely help with your hitters. Um, when we're talking pitchers, what are you looking at when you're picking your pitchers besides, you know, obviously, you know, Chris Sale versus anybody pretty much? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um, for for pitchers, the, the most important thing is it, it's kind of a mirror image to batters. So for hitters, I want a high ground ball rate. That's one of the highest things that I look at. Um, I want pitchers that are not going to walk people because I think that that's one of the most important things that you can avoid when you are choosing pitchers. Like I, I never take Francisco Liriano. I never take him because his walk rate is just exorbitant. Like there's, there's no reason for me to like it. You got to think about not only the fact that you're letting a pit, a player on base. Um, and that's, I, I mean, that's negative points against you for, for DFS, but, um, at the same time, like when you think about the way that a pitcher is mentally in a game, when there's hitters on base, um, that pressure kind of starts to build. So when you have a pitcher that constantly walks people and constantly lets people onto first, maybe that hitter then steals second, and then that pitcher has that in the back of his head, and then he walks another guy because he's worried. Like, it can go downhill so quick. So I just really try to focus on uh, not walking batters. I love whip. Like, whip is my favorite stat, I think, for pitchers. And then um, mitigating hard contact, again, is super important. Uh, guys like Lance McCullers have a really, really good soft contact rate. Um, Dallas Kitchell had a really, really good soft contact rate. I think he was one of the tops in the league last year in both uh, ground ball percentage and soft contact. So those are the kinds of things that I look at. I With hitters, I want to focus on hitting the ball in the air and far. With pitchers, I want to focus on guys that hit it into the ground and soft. And then um, I, I kind of give a couple of things to like, K per nine is good for ceiling. Um, Woba is good. Second percentage, like uh, limiting those kinds of things. But K per nine doesn't really matter that much to me. I don't. I don't think. I know that matters to a lot of people because it's like a shiny stat. But the most important thing is getting batters out. It doesn't really matter how you do it. If you can go eight, nine innings and get three or four Ks, a lot of the time pitchers are priced low enough that that's good enough. Yeah, the uh, the hard contact is very very important to me. The li- the way to limit it. I do pay attention to K's just for the fact that DraftKings values them so, so much. But I agree with the fact that at the same time, if you're striking out a lot of guys, you're not going deep into the game. So your chances of wins sometimes decrease. Your are just innings, period. They're all, it, it kind of offsets here and there. So um, basically, 
pick the best pitchers is pretty much what we're saying here. But yeah. that makes a lot of sense. That's Captain Obvious. We take this brief break from Bench with Bubba to talk to you about Rotoware. It's one of the best quality shirts in the industry. When I mean industry, all the clothing industry, the fantasy sports industry, because people are rocking it. They're loving it. You're seeing it in a lot of big outlets now. The no other brand can compete with Rotoware in terms of quality. They're premium blend fabric, super soft, comfortable, athletic fit shirts. They specialize with a special, special printing process. The design is part of the shirt. Literally, it is, it is dyed and bleached into the fabric. No thick ink. There's over 30 different designs right now. It's just crazy, all the stuff they have coming out. And there's more and more stu- stuff every time you turn your head. They have fantasy football, baseball, hockey, basketball, some really cool DFS ones. But everything's great. They have men's, women's, and kids. Check them all out. Go to rotoware.com, R-O-T-O-W-E-A-R.com. Check them out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Rotoware. But the cool part, guys, if you use the promo code DGENS, D-E-G-E-N-S, you get 20% off your order. Again, promo code DGENS, D-E-G-E-N-S. Check their site out. Check them Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. They're always giving away free shirts. And then when you go to purchase the ones you want for you, your loved ones, your friends, your family, whatever, use promo code DGENS, D-E-G-E-N-S, for 20% off your order. Now back to this week's episode of Bench with Bubba. When you're stacking, now you can't physically or financially stack the best of the best in every lineup and still get good pitching most nights. So you mentioned guys like Ender and Ciarte, who is phenomenal at this. Billy Hamilton's price eventually came up, but basically those kind of leadoff guys that get on base, steal bases, which are very, very pricey uh, points-wise, and then score runs do come in handy in these stacks. How do you focus your stacks? Are you a middle of the order, front of the order? Kind of what are you looking at? I usually go middle of the order. Uh, and and the reason for that is the majority of what you just said. Like those leadoff guys can get so expensive, um, and they're good. Like they're a good part of stacks. Um, Trey Turner is a really really good part of a national stack, obviously, because he's he's such a good combination of of uh, hitting and stealing, and and he's a good player. And um, like Jose Altuve is very very good, um, but he's always five K. You know, uh, there, there's not too many people that I want to pay that kind of price for. And that's why I generally end up fading cores is because I like I'm not paying 5k for Brandon Belt like ever that it's just silly. So, um, yeah, I'm usually a middle of the order guy. I usually skip the first two batters um, and start at three or four because that's generally when uh, you start getting those event oriented guys. Um, but unless it's like a, spe- a specific instance, like Mike Trout was hitting second there for a while last year when. Um, Old man Cole Cole Calhoun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when he when he was out for a little while, um, he, Mike Trout was hitting second. So that it, it really just kind of depends on how the stack shakes out. I usually don't focus a lot on really really expensive stacks. Last year, I I didn't stack the Nationals like at all, um, except if they were facing R. A. Dickey. I think I I want to turn me off that and then. Um, I hardly ever stacked anybody in cores, even though I go to cores games and I have to watch them hit home runs. Like they're just, they're too expensive and too highly owned. So I usually focus on the middle of the road guys. I focus a lot on, uh, on those cheaper stacks that still have upside because there's so much variance that happens in hitting that all you really need is, uh, to knock that pitcher out. And, um, it, honestly, I focus a lot more on bullpen than I do on starting pitcher as well. So that, that's how I end up on kind of those middle-of-the-road stacks as well. And the bullpen thing is a great point. It's going to come way more into play, you know, this year. We already saw it tremendously last year, but a lot of pitchers don't go past six innings these days, period. You're lucky if they go five. So that's, that's already four to three to four innings of bullpen. We're already seeing some teams going with the four-man rotations. Um, there's going to be a lot of bullpen in play, so that's going to be quite interesting. When you're stacking, do you do – what size stacks do you use? Do you sometimes would you rather do like a couple, you know, two to three man stacks in your lineup, or do you all in on certain teams? So this is where pitcher price comes into play. So typically, if I'm going to pay um, 12k for Clayton Kershaw, which I do almost every single time that he pitches, I I think I skipped out on Kershaw day like four times last year. Um, if I'm going to pay 12k for Clayton Kershaw, I'm probably not going to be able to afford a full stack. That actually has upside. So that's when I'll do a four-man stack. I'll go like a four-two-two or a four-two-one-one um, or a four-three-one or something like that. I'll start with a four-man stack if I'm going to pay 12k up. 
if I'm going to pay like 10K for a pitcher between 10 and 11K, then I'll usually try to force a five man. I optimally would prefer to have a five man stack every single day um, because you have to capture it, it. You have to capture the entirety of the runs scored for a game. And if I'm going to stack against the Marlins, right? Like if I'm going to stack against Jose Arena, um, and I think that they're going to knock Jose Arena out in three innings, then I want all of that Miami Marlins bullpen, like all of it. And that's where it really comes into play. And people people kind of stack against starting pitchers. People stack against um, James Shields. People stack against these these low, subpar starting pitchers. But say that you stacked against Hyren Ju last year for the Dodgers. Um, the Dodgers bullpen was nasty, dude. Yeah. Like if you stacked against Masahiro Tanaka when he was not doing well, the Yankees bullpen is nasty. Like you don't want any part of that. So if you knock his starting pitcher out and he has a good bullpen behind him, um, you're really not maximizing that stack. So that's why it's so important to focus on bullpen. And if I can get a five-man stack, that's what I want to do always because I want to take advantage of all the runs are scored. You don't know who's going to hit home runs. Like you have a good idea, but there's times when you need to have that full stack to work. No, that's a great point. Um, yeah, because you need all nine innings. You need to get a rally or two out of your stack, and you'll be okay. And if if you're only getting that one big rally early, and then you got five, six innings of bullpen, that could be very, very difficult. So, like you know, say they get to a, an Astros pitcher, but then you get Davinsky for three innings. It's not quite what you're looking for. So, definitely a valid point there. I know from our football talks, you are a contrarian player. How do you? approach contrarian play when it comes to baseball uh contrarianism is the easiest route in baseball uh, like mlb by far it is the easiest way to be contrarian because there's times when like wilmer defoe who is like not even a good baseball another player, great value player <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean he's gonna be like 40 50 percent owned on slates because he's yeah. gonna lead off or whatever um but these super cheap leadoff guys, or uh, I think it was Wilmer Flores last year, he he would end up getting up to like 45% in some of those high-dollar tournaments. And it's so easy for something like that not to pan out. It's so easy for you to just take another guy who's 4K. Um, and if your 4K guy hits a home run and the 45% owned chalk play doesn't, then you just pass so much of the field. It And it is so event-oriented. It, it's, it's a lot like... Well, it is a lot like hockey. I don't play a lot of hockey DFS, but um, one goal can obviously change things. But in baseball, it's so much more because it's worth 15 points for a home run. It's so easy to be contrarian. You, you just got to find – if you know that somebody's going to be 50% owned, it's it's almost silly to take them in MLB unless you're playing cash games. Like if you're playing tournaments, you should basically want no part of something that high owned because it's so easy for it to fail. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it, there's lots of ways to kind of uh, figure out how that's going to happen just by paying attention to Twitter feeds and to talk, or you can subscribe to something. There's tons of ways to get projected ownership that uh, gives you all that. And I know Daily Roto definitely has those tools. So check that out. Let's talk cash versus GPP. I just kind of hit it at it there. When you're building your cash lineups, what's kind of your approach? I just want all the chalk um, for the most part. Like, I. Cash games across basically all sports is kind of the same thing. Uh, you identify the best value plays. You identify the um, most common, like, best quote-unquote stack. You don't really try to get cute. Uh, and in baseball, I don't know. I, I follow my numbers so strictly in baseball that I usually end up contrarian just based off of the way that I build things um, because so many people focus on – um, price and where they're hitting in the order. Those are kind of the two main things and who they're facing, obviously. Like if you have uh, if you have a cheap guy hitting second against James Shields, that, that player needs to be in your lineup, regardless of how you feel about them in cash. But in GPP, it's totally a different story. So cash games, it, it's really just kind of about um, hitting on the chalk and, and taking the smart value plays. Like don't try to get cute. Uh, whereas in GPPs, it's definitely different. What do you do at GPP to make it different? Uh, I will actively fade entire teams in baseball. Um, like I, I kind of was known a little bit for fading cores last year because I would almost never have it. Um, the prices were too much. The ownership was too much. I understand the upside, but 
when we talk about upside in baseball, a lot of people don't talk about floor. And the floor of every single hitter every single night is zero points. It's yep. like zero to three points. Uh, unless you're Mike Trout or Jose Altuve, like I don't care who it is. Their, their floor is zero. Their upside might be significantly higher in Colorado, but um, the, the ownership on it, ownership is probably the easiest way to be contrarian because everybody has essentially the same ceiling. Like if, if you think about a player in MLB, you think about, okay, they're either going to give me a hit or they're going to give me a home run. Because like you said earlier in, in this show, um, the, the most likely outcome is that they're going to go one for four. And what that one is, is really going to depend on how your night went. So that one hit, it, it's, it's more important to me in GPPs to be off of the chalk rather than trying to attack a good position. I, I do try to follow my numbers, but I typically try to fade chalk when I can. Now, when you're making this GPP lineup and you're paying up for pitching, do you care if the pitching's chalking? Just are you just trying to differentiate your bats, or do you differentiate pitching and bats? Uh, I won't differentiate on high-owned pitching unless I have a really good reason. Um, like I, I wouldn't play Max Scherzer against on the road against lefty-heavy lineups because he's been bad against lefties on the road. Uh, I don't know what it is about it, but you can go back through like 2014 and his his numbers are significantly worse against lefties on the road um, than they are at home. So I, I would fade him for like a low, lower owned Kershaw, but typically a really good pitcher in a good spot is going to take advantage of it. And I don't see any reason to fade there, but I will fade cheap pitchers that have a lower floor um, in a good spot. Like I, I'll fade... I don't know. I, I think there were a couple guys that I faded that were super cheap last year. Mike Clevenger, I think I faded for the first half of the season um, in good spots because he still would give up home runs. His strikeout rate is really, really good, but he would still give up home runs. So I, I was just trying to avoid that. But I won't, I won't fade a high-owned pitcher um, if I know that they're good. I usually try to differentiate with bats. Okay. Uh, when you're differentiating with your bats – I know that the easy answer, and it might be your answer, which is totally fine, you're focusing on the meat of the order. We talked about that in the stacks. Now, when you're looking for your value plays, do you – okay, preferred is not the right word because obviously you want your value in the middle of the order. Do you care if, say, you're taking a value catcher and he's only going to hit seventh or eighth? Do you, does that, like, affect your decision-making process, or are you – you have to have certain spots in the order? Uh, I prefer – not to take a regular hitter after about the sixth spot in the order. So like um, Jared Dyson is a pretty good example of somebody who I would still take if they were hitting eighth or ninth, because if they get on base, um, they still have a good propriety to steal. They still have a good um, chance to get a run. But um, typically like a catcher with the catcher, you're just trying to hit a home run for like 90% of the, for 90% of the catchers. So, um, them hitting late doesn't really do much for me. It doesn't drive anybody in most of the time. They're kind of surrounded by mediocre guys that aren't going to get them in. So um, that kind of value play, I prefer my value plays to be in good spots rather than just a value play that's, uh, that has good stats against a certain kind of pitcher. Do you, uh, if you had a one deciding factor, do you prefer AL or NL? I don't. Okay. That's, yeah, no, I, that's, that's, that's the correct answer. I, or at least that's my answer. There's no correct answer, but um, that, that's the way I look at it. I know some people go, Oh, there's a DH blah, 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 blah. But uh, the best line is the best line of the way I see it. Yeah. I don't care, man. Like I care more about rostering good players than where they are geographically. Um, sizes of tournaments. We, we've talked about it many times on our other show. You know, there's the 20 entry max, three entry single, the, the mass multi entering tournaments. There's a little bit of everything. Like when you mentioned fading cores, I was a fan of fading cores last year. I didn't have the balls to do it all the time, but if I had like say a three max tournament, I'd have one cores and two non cores, stuff like that. Um, what size tournaments do you prefer that these things a good wheelhouse? Uh, I, I'm best in the 150 to $333 contests um, because typically, especially in a sport like this where it's like super, super event-oriented, um, shotgunning, th- those MME guys that can enter 150 lineups into that $5, 
Um, yep. They have a huge advantage because they can cover so many bases. Um, yep. I always, I always prefer in every single sport, and especially in baseball, to be focusing on a smaller tournament size. Um, I prefer to have less than 500, 500 entrants. Um, and three max is my favorite thing probably on the planet. But um, yeah, smaller tournaments. And we need to talk about the tournaments that they have for opening day because they kind of suck. Well, we will get to that. Let me open them up. But I, I, um, this could be a good segue because I agree. Like I've done, I've done well in the twenty maxes, but I love to just sit in the three max single entries. Uh, keep it. I, I don't go on the big, big ones that you just mentioned there, but I, I do prefer to kind of keep things simple and, and go from there. To because you, you said it best, the player pool. Some will say it's larger, but in the grand scheme of things. The if they can max enter all those and you have like forty thousand people in these tournaments, you are going to have a hard time keeping up with it. So, totally and agree I, with you there. And I will say that um, I really like the twenty max tournaments, and, and I will play it every day. Um, but I, I think my favorite tournaments, if I were to tell people um, to play certain things, it would definitely be the three max and try to keep the uh, the entries limits lower. Um, especially in baseball because you you want to stand the same chance you don't want to you don't want to be dealing with guys that are going to be setting fancy cruncher to five-man stacks and one-offs and have like every one-off under the sun that could possibly do something um like technically yes 150 lineups out of twenty-nine thousand doesn't really increase your ev that much but it does increase the probability of landing on the right guys yeah, completely. Um, yeah, you want to talk about those tournaments on Monday? Let's talk about them because I was even surprised on the 20 max alone, the grand prize is only $10,000, which kind of shocked me a bit. Uh, and that's with almost that's over almost 60,000 people in that one. So that wasn't great. Uh, what, what are you looking at that kind of made you think, what the heck? Yeah, I mean, like uh, the warning track, the 150 is only 185 entries. Yeah. Like for, for NBA, it was 400 on a nightly basis. And uh, they have two different $100 tournaments. Um, one of them is 111 entries, and one of them is 77. Like, why? These are <laughs> small, dude. Like, really small. I, even a season opener with uh, 100K to first, like, it's only 29,000 people. You really think that only 29,000 people are going to enter that? You could make that a million maker and have like 200,000 entries and it would fill. Oh, yeah, especially on opening day and, and every team, because that's one thing we haven't even mentioned yet. This is the first time in years every single team was playing on opening day. So this will be jam-packed to Thursday, not like a Monday or something. This is big. Um, yeah, and, and what this is going to lead to, and we should talk about this as a strategy piece, is that there's going to be a lot of overfill contests, like oh, a, yeah. a lot of overfill contests. So um, the real quick, real, real quick, explain to people what overfill is that might not know. Okay, yeah. So when a tournament fills, uh, DraftKings will generally like send out another tournament after that that's the same buy-in level, um, it's the same entry, and it'll have like a smaller top prize, or it'll have the same top prize if they project that they're getting enough people for it to fill. So like. This uh, this moonshot, well, no, the, the season opener will fill by, like, Tuesday, I think, or Wednesday. Like, it will definitely fill. Um, and then they're probably going to have another one that is the same size or maybe a little bit less. But if you can get one where it's, like, if they drop it down to, like, a 10K entry and drop the prize pool down to 50,000 or whatever it is, you can jump in that and you can get a little bit of better edge because the, the top MME guys aren't going to enter that contest, like, that many times. Um, sometimes they do, but if they enter that, that max twice, um, that's all that they'll really need. So eventually it drops it down to where you can get that edge back and you're playing against players that are within kind of the regular range of skill. No, that's a great point. We see it in a lot of sports, uh, especially kind of, you know, baseball is definitely one of the big sports, but a lot of these niche sports, golf, NASCAR, MMA, DraftKings has still yet to figure out the right size pools for anything. They're filling up days in advance, and they still can't figure it out. And it's a great point with these baseballs, just looking at them. They're going to fill extremely fast. Baseball's a week away, and there's almost 4,000 entries in the moonshot already. So that's And that's people 
most people that I know are just now finding out that these things are there. Um, I've already had people messaging me that they've already reserved spots in these things. So it's, it's, it's happening. It's going to happen quickly. I'm kind of disappointed. I love like the $20 three entry. They have a $27 three entry, which is an odd one for me. And it's only 215 people. So that was kind of a, yeah. a disappointment there. These are just, yeah, very odd. There's my, the normal $12 single entry, unless I'm missing it. I don't even see it anywhere. So like, I, I think, oh, there I it is. I see it now. Tripled all of the entry levels for all of these contests. I think you could have tripled it and it still would have been fine. Yeah, twelve dollars single entry is only twenty four hundred and fifty people. <laughs> that's that's silly, man. Um, but I haven't actually looked at the slate yet, so I guess we'll do that next. Yeah, I haven't really dug in a ton, but I figured, why not uh, kind of give it a perusal? Let's just look at the um, the nine game main slate. For some reason, you know, on opening day, you think they'd have a three day all day. Maybe they'll open it up later. But right now, they have a three game early and a nine game main. Nine game starting at. Uh, 12.05 Pacific time, 3.05 Eastern. And it's got some of those big arms. The pitching is actually pretty pretty interesting because you got four guys over 10K and then it kind of drops quick. But, you know, you got Sales, Scherzer, Verlander, Severino at top. You know, at a first glance, you're going to probably, you know, sail against that Tampa Bay lineup. It has to look pretty nice. Yeah, that's why I kind of just like threw my head back there because how do you fade sail? against Tampa Bay, who got rid of their best hitters in the offseason and going to roll out this lineup of, like, triple-A fodder against Chris Sale. I mean, he's going to, like, set a record for most strikeouts on opening day. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, Verlander against Texas is interesting. I might want to stack Texas against him because I really am down on Verlander as a, to as a whole this year. James Shields is out there, which is hilarious. <laughs> Man, okay, yep, so you have to play Chris Sale, basically. But, yeah, um, really, really good arms out there. Uh, that That's a nice um, opening day slate of pitchers. That's really nice, actually. Uh, I know we kind of already hinted at you don't go super cheap value, but let's just let's just throw this out there. You got Clayton Richard in Petco Park for 5400 bucks, and last year Milwaukee struck out a ton. Um, any desire to match him up with Sale? It still leaves you leverage at the plate. No, no, okay. and, and I'll tell you why. Um, I actually like Clayton Richard, um, and so I used him a lot last year because he has a really, really good ground ball rate. He was um, above 50% ground ball for the majority of the year last year. So uh, he, he wasn't really giving up too many home runs unless he was in a park that obviously gave up a lot of home runs. But the thing about Milwaukee is adding uh, Lorenzo Cain and Christian Yelich is good huge. Point. Good point. That's huge. Uh, neither one of those guys have huge strikeout rates. Um, and they're both like decent hitters. We still have Thames who should come back after like having an offseason really assess why he had such a bad strikeout rate. Um, that Milwaukee lineup is actually going to be pretty scary. It'll be really, really popular. Um, probably not this slate, I don't think, but um, later on it's, it's going to be really popular because it's the strikeout rate is just not going to be there. Um, and anybody who takes pictures against them, I think is going to have a really rude awakening this year. Yeah, I loved using Milwaukee bats last year. It'll be even better this year. Uh, one of the middle pitchers, again, I have not looked at a lot of things on this, but just at first glance, uh, Danny Duffy at 7700 bucks. I know he was very suspect last year, but here's a guy in Kansas City, one of the parks we're looking to target for pitching against the White Sox lineup that, you know, pretty hit and miss. Yeah, yeah, I like Danny Duffy a lot. Um, Seventy-seven hundred is is not a bad price. Um, depending, kind of, um, if I do end up stacking the Rangers, I'll probably be able to afford him um, off the top of my head, since the Rangers aren't going to be expensive because Verlander had a good second half. But um, yeah, I, I could get behind Danny Duffy. Uh, I can get behind uh, Julio Teheran or however the hell you pronounce his name um, against Philly at home, like. Atlanta was really good for bats in the first half last year, but then it really calmed down. So um, I, I would think that taking him, he had a really bad year last year, but he can turn up the gas. He has a really good fastball. Uh, if he worked on his breaking balls, he actually does have like a bit of a ceiling, especially against kind of a weak Philadelphia lineup. Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's uh, jump to the outfield just because these names are ridiculous. You got Trout, Stanton, Harper, Judge, Betts, Springer, Martinez, Hoskins, and the list goes on and on and on. There is a slew 
of bats back here. Is there anything that's just jumping out at you besides Trout, the obvious? Yeah, I mean, they priced Yelich way up already. I thought he was going to come into the season like high threes, low fours, but 4,500 is, I mean, that's that's where he should be, but we don't really get much of a discount on him. Um, yeah, I up top, people are going to be all over Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, like all over them. Uh, Jay Happ isn't really a great pitcher, but he's not bad either. Um and then Mike Trout in Oakland, man, that sucks a lot, especially because I actually think Kendall Graveman is good. Uh, Mookie Betts will have no ownership, like yep. at all, literally at all. So that'll be interesting. Um, I, I think that we'll see 20-plus percent ownership on Stan and Judge um, and whoever Cincinnati throws out there. Like Bryce Harper, I think, has hit a home run in yep. the opening day baseball for like – 48 years straight. So. It's, so, it's what it feels like. Yes, it's yeah. every single year. It's on clockwork. Man, but look at look at Reese Hoskins. Look at yep. Reese Hoskins. 4,700. Yep. I'll be fading the hell out of that. You know, sp- I think Sprinter at 49 against Cole Hamels will be quite overlooked in this little spew of things. I agree. That's an interesting one to uh, to, to keep an eye on. When you slide down the outfield, you know, there's your Nomar Mazar at 3,900 versus Verlander. That can be quite interesting. Um, other than that, uh, Billy Hamilton at 37 against Scherzer. If you want to get real weird, but I would rather not probably. But, yeah, very interesting uh, list of bats that you can look at here. Oh, uh, yeah. you noticed that uh, Otane? I just saw that, yeah. yeah He's at 3,600. 3, like that. 3,600. You know when that could be uh, real interesting if you want to just go guts and glory. I know it's Scherzer and he just mows down right-handed bats. And I'm going to probably not have any of him, but now that look, Adam Duvall at 3,400. You know in the season he's in the high four or mid fours at least. You're getting about $1,000 for a home run bet there. I also, I, I might like Granderson way down there at 3,300. Um, I respect Severino. But uh, Granderson's at, he's a really good hitter, actually. And Toronto's a nice park. So you talked yeah, about you talked about you talked about Scherzer on the road versus lefties and get Scott Shebler for thirty one hundred. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, but I should uh, I should clarify that. So last year he added a power slider, is what he calls it, a power slider, which is just, it really really helped his rates against lefties. So uh, I probably won't, especially since we know that home run rates are down in the beginning of the year. I probably won't be focusing too much on like heavy hitters, but um, if, if that power slider, if people kind of figured it out and watched tape on him, those lefties are going to get a hold of him again. So it's yeah. something to monitor. I'm probably not interested in the first day, but yeah, I mean, some of these prices are really, really nice. Yeah. And I'm not going to go over each position. If there's anything that stands out to you, let me know. But all in all, most of it's pretty standard positioning wise. Gary Sanchez at 4,700 is insane, but um are there any teams that you're going to, you think are going to be your sneaky stacks outside of Texas? Yeah, I mean, Texas is probably going to be my main one. Um, I, I think you have to give a little bit of credence to the Angels because, like I've talked about on Twitter, I think that they're going to be like a force to be reckoned with this year. I think they'll be really, really good. Adding, let's see, so now you have Mike Trout, you have Justin Upton, who's underrated every single year. He's really, really good. Um, Zach Cozart, Cole Calhoun is always underpriced for where he hits in the lineup. So um, that Angels lineup, I think, is going to be sneaky for a while, especially playing in Oakland uh, against Graveman. Like, we know that Graveman has his home run issues. So that's that's an interesting spot. And then, um, I don't know, I I hate Kansas City, but James Shields is James Shields. Yeah, I was thinking that too, like Moustakis or something, because – you know, he might strike out, but it's that whole one-for-three thing, run into one, and you can get him cheap. He's 3800 bucks. And I kind of wonder, like, looking at this, since we know that people are going to want to stack the Yankees, uh, we know that people are going to want to stack the Astros. Like, I, I think that you're going to be able to get Boston really, really low-owned. Yeah, against um, Archer. Yeah, against Chris Archer. And uh, Chris Archer is good. He's really good. But things can go downhill really quickly for him at the same time. Yeah, they're about it. 
No yeah. doubt about it. Well, James, my friend, that was fun. Very, very fun. Uh, any final thoughts on the MLB DFS season coming up? No, man. Um, I'm uh, I'm really excited. I, I mentioned off air that I'm a little bit behind. I still got to build a couple of things on my algorithms because life's crazy. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited and uh, I'm excited to continue writing for Daily Roto. You can find all my stuff over there. Always. I do have a free article up right now on early season stuff that we talked about earlier. Um, and I'm excited for uh, for podcasts and talks and stuff like that. Um, just excited for the season to get started. Yep, a lot going on. Remember to check them out on Twitter at Pater underscore DFS. And also, I should have said this at the beginning, but I forgot. Congratulations on your FSWA award for new writer of the year, I believe is what it was. Yeah, uh, newcomer of the year for the uh, Fantasy Sports Art Association. And thank you, sir. I very much appreciate it. It's a huge honor. I, I didn't think. But I, I mean, yeah, it's just super cool. I'm still pretty speechless about it. Yeah, it's, I have had back-to-back FSWA winners. This is pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, but uh, congratulations, everybody! Check him out on Twitter. Check him out at Daily Roto. He's uh, he's write stuff all year on baseball and other sports. And James, thanks for joining me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a good one, man. Yeah, Bench with Bubba, episode eighty-one in the books. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>